This is Circulating Ideas. I'm Steve Thomas. My guest today is Matt Finch. He is a strategy and foresight consultant at Mechanical Dolphin and a adjunct research fellow at the University of Southern Queensland. Circulating Ideas is brought to you with support from listeners just like you. Find out how you can help support the show by going to circulatingideas.com slash support. Matt, welcome to the show. Steve, thank you for having me and greetings from across the time zones. <laughs> but still um, joined together with us in quarantine. Yes, everyone everyone is locked down in their homes, whatever time zone they're in. <laughs> and we, we finally, the whole world finally has something in common. <laughs> right. Yeah, the, finding the sunny side in a global threat. I didn't expect it to be, you know, <laughs> the prevalence of homeschooling or... Or being able to have lunch with your partner every day, right? Um, so, can you tell me a little bit about the um, the work you've done, kind of in the past, and how you've kind of come to work? Uh, I know you don't work exclusively with libraries, but how you've come to work with libraries? So these days, I, I help people and organizations and communities to sort of plan their way through difficult and uncertain situations. So when the future is unclear, and we can't just rely on the what's to come looking like it has in the present and the past. There are different ways and techniques that you can help people have conversations where you explore what might be coming and help them come up with strategies that will get them through difficult decisions. And as you say, I mean, I'm doing a lot of work at the moment with the energy sector, uh, with schools in Norway through the University of Oslo. But I do an awful lot of work with libraries and librarianship's really close to my heart. Um, weirdly, that only happened for me about 10 years ago after the earthquakes in Christchurch, New Zealand. Um, I was there writing for a New Zealand education magazine and I went to do a piece on their, you know, design a superhero over the summer holidays activity or something. And then the second of three consecutive earthquakes had hit. And so of course that was canceled, but I assumed not being a librarian, of course, after an earthquake, the first service that will close is the public library. Quite the opposite. The librarians found new ways to offer their services in buildings that were no longer functional. They left the Wi-Fi on so that people could still message and Skype as long as they were sort of within the vicinity of the building. They became the city agency, which issued permits for the red zone, uh, which was deeply affected by the earthquake. The National Library of New Zealand took it upon themselves to hire a photographer to chronicle what had happened. And the library's photographer was actually the only one allowed into the red zone to, to capture the devastation, contemporary collecting for the archives. So I saw this and it was a sort of transformative experience for me. And having previously worked with universities, worked in higher education, written, uh, I found myself working more and more with libraries because I, I think I saw in this crisis um, what that institution could do for a community. Uh, and prior to that, although I'm not a librarian myself, my, my doctorate was actually about the Warburg Library, um, which was an art historical library, which was moved from Hamburg to Britain during the time of the rise of the Nazis. So a, a largely Jewish bunch of early modern and Renaissance art scholars had this incredible specialist library and they managed to get it shifted to the UK and to get the University of London to say they would look after it in perpetuity during the Second World War, which anyone who's ever tried to get an institution to fund taking on a new collection, let alone saying they'll keep it in perpetuity. Um, you can imagine that was a, a pretty impressive bit of office politics. <laughs> 
Yeah, well, I guess it probably especially during um, kind of wartime austerity kind of stuff of getting them to commit to this <laughs> was probably a big deal. Yeah, absolutely. And we see a similar thing now. You know, when I'm working with libraries at the moment, a lot of the concern is not just the immediate service of how do we get through the pandemic? What do we do when we, we can't open our doors? But beyond this, the the state is having to bail out and support and fund so many things in response to this pandemic. What does the funding environment look like two to five years from now? And I know there's a lot of thinking going on about that, about how do we negotiate to get the money libraries need and, and demonstrate their relevance? Um, so to kind of take a step back, we've been talking a little bit about your work, but can you kind of, a lot of what it is you do is working with scenario planning. Can you kind of describe what scenario planning kind of is as a concept? Sure. So scenario planning, it actually evolves from the Cold War and the wake of the Second World War when uh, the arms race began with nuclear weapons. And it was such a devastating um, potential conflict that awaited us that planners couldn't compare it to anything that had existed before. And you couldn't make analogies to conflicts of the past. And they realized they needed to actually make analogies to the future. They needed to imagine the worlds that might come to pass and say, what would we do in those situations? And so beginning as that concept with the military and government, it moved into big business. Um, most recently, I think it was just before 9-11, the US Coast Guard did a big scenarios exercise which actually worked out very well for them because their role transformed a lot after 9-11. They took on new security roles. And so it started out as this very serious, crunchy tool which said, you know, when you can't predict the future, the future won't just be another point on a graph. You have to imagine situations. So instead of trying to predict, the criterion is plausibility. And what that means is can you imagine a future which is challenging to your assumptions but still useful to your decisions? Like little green men could arrive in flying saucers tomorrow or Atlantis could rise from the depths. But I can't really do much about that if I'm running a county library. <laughs> so it's not a useful scenario. Right. But actually, if someone had said two years ago, do you have a plan for a pandemic that completely locks things down? Um, that might have been worth considering. And so as a scenario planner, you you identify a decision that needs to be made. And then you build a, a community of people, of stakeholders, of interested parties. And there are different methods for, for kind of working out a future or a number of futures that just challenge your assumptions. You don't have to predict the one future that comes to pass. You find the stories that identify your strategic blind spots. And of course, we're experiencing now with the pandemic. We experienced it before with the global financial crisis. You know, when a real crisis comes along, you find out where your blind spots are very quickly. Um, so if you can imagine a few crises in advance, <laughs> it might make you more resilient. And and that's where I come in. Yeah, I've actually heard that uh, certainly like military and intelligence offices do this all the time. Like they've always got like just scenarios just running. Like what's the, the most um crazy thing that could happen and what how can we plan for that and I've, there's even some places i know that bring in like writers like science fiction writers and things like that of just give me the craziest thing that you can think of and let's let's plan against that again maybe even just a little green men okay so let's say aliens come what do we do <laughs> and and the, the trick to make it um not just daydreaming and speculation so anyone can do this and i'm sure in the time we have talking we'll, we'll talk through some ways people can just do this now they don't need to read up or or go and find someone like me um but the trick is always to make sure that those crazy stories are challenging your assumptions about what happens. So you always make sure they speak to the decision you need to make, like when do we reopen or should we invest in a new building? 
or you know, what should the layout of this new library we've built look like? Um, so even last year in Spain, I was doing some work with the Spanish culture ministry and I happened to be talking to them yesterday and we were laughing because a year ago as a provocation, uh, we said to some very good, very accomplished uh, public librarians in Northwest Spain, in Galicia, in the Basque country, who have really great library services, we said, okay, imagine there are no buildings. Imagine that the public library is a service, not a destination. And so your job becomes, you have to identify the community's needs and wants when it comes to information, knowledge, and culture. You have a budget, you can use other venues, you can come up with other services, but you can't expect them to come to your building. And they found it very hard and they found it very unrealistic. Um, but actually, that's kind of the situation we're suddenly in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but yeah, that, 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 like you said, that's how you, you, that's why you have to think through these things. And um, you, you did make, in some stuff that I was reading that you had written, you said that there is a difference between um, scenario planning and forecasting, though. Can you, can you talk about kind of what the difference between those are? Sure. It's, it's, it's simply that forecasting is when you build a model that tries to predict the future that will actually come to pass. And one of the issues we have now in this very data-driven world, and as information professionals, we like evidence and data, but you can, you can never gather evidence and data from the future. The events haven't happened yet. We don't have a time machine. So you're always betting on the predictive power of your model. And, you know, like if you're running a department store in the run-up to Christmas, you can probably say, how's the economy doing this year? How many shop assistants do we normally need? Well, this year we need this many. Or if you're running a summer reading activity in a library and you take on extra people for that, you can plan for that. But but forecasting lets you down as soon as something hits you out of left field. And that's why you have these discussions about what's coming to sort of stretch uh, your ability to perceive the future and, and see where you've just got blind spots because you can't imagine this would ever come to pass. Um, And I wonder, have there been any things that have happened during the pandemic so far? I saw that very unfortunately, somebody came and smashed a window in one of your libraries during the Easter weekend. I mean, that's not so unusual, but but have there been any events uh, during the lockdown that have stood out for you? Uh, I think the biggest thing that not not only in my library, but I'm seeing in other libraries is just the adjustment to, you know, people have been just kind of dipping their toe into doing virtual programming, you know, putting stuff just on the web. And that's kind of what we've had to shift the entirety of our programming into. And that's what we're, you know, we're used to being able to, oh, we can have our little story time or we have the little babies come in and toddlers come in and this. And that's what, you know, the bulk of the numbers that we get of people coming in the building, um, besides people just browsing to use the rest of it. But for programming wise, it's for those little kids. And we cannot do that now. And we're not gonna be able to do that for the foreseeable future. (laughs) I mean, that's a long way off before you can have large scale programs again. So that's, I think the biggest thing that people again, we were kind of dipping our toe into it already, but nobody was, some people were doing, you know, well, let's, let's do a Facebook live story time. That's okay. And we'll do that once a month or something like that. But now it's like, you're having to crank those out <laughs> um, multiple times a week now. So Entirely. I think I saw Justin Henke, the, the brilliant US librarian who's now in Wellington, New Zealand, was very quick off the bandwagon to have uh, Facebook outreach programs, to have people interacting with the community through their screens. Um, But one of the things I think is really important is it's sometimes in library land, it's very hard to have disagreements, like polite disagreements about the future, where we respect one another, but have different visions for what's coming. And I I heard from Justin about this, and he moved really quickly with the tools at hand to deliver this things like story times doing really excellent work. Uh, And then another equally brilliant library thinker from Norway called Martin Christopher Broughton 
who works at uh, Bibliotheque Centralen, which is like the Norway has a national library cooperative that supplies all the books and collections because Norway's like four or five million people. So since the 50s, they've had this state-owned cooperative business that kind of does all the behind-the-scenes stuff. And he was saying there's a danger, you know, if you use portals like Facebook, if you're basically acting as a gatekeeper to digital content, you know, are some people going to look at that and say, what value add does the library bring? You know, like there's a tension there in the long term of, of making ourselves look irrelevant. I, I don't know if you've heard similar debates or what it looks like from your perspective. Yeah, well, I, I think a similar thing is not only so much that, I mean, that, that's that's certainly part of it, but it's kind of it's nice that like publishers and other people are opening up their content for free. But then it's kind of like when there's all these other great content out there, what is it that the library is adding that's different when you can get, you know, New York Times bestselling authors to do um, Instagram live readings of their books <laughs> what's what, what, how are you going to do a book club about their book and like well i could go listen to them talk about their book and they can read a passage of it so that that makes it especially difficult now because there are so many other viable good options so you have to really figure out what is it that the library kind of uniquely brings to this and that's the challenge that i'm giving to my staff kind of of well what's you know that's that's great that you want to um i don't know do a program about telling healthcare workers that they're great and give them thanks. And that, that's, that, that's great, but I'm seeing that all over the place. And that doesn't mean we don't do it, but what's the unique library spin on that? How do we add something to that? That's not already out there in the world. Well, one of the tools we use in scenario planning, it kind of complements the future facing stuff is there are, there are different ways of mapping the value created by an institution and these days, you and I know, especially, um, you know, this isn't just about financial value, although it's really important to think about the money. Um, but one of the examples we always give is that uh, that dentist from the States who went and shot Cecil the lion, if you recall, in Africa. Yeah, yeah. And in the in the side business school at Oxford, where I, I work sometimes as a facilitator on the scenarios course, they use him as an example. They say this guy spent $54,000 legitimately going to hunt a lion. But then what it did to his reputation, what? the impact of that was globally on the idea that they could even be legitimate lion hunting. You know, how do you put a cash value on that transaction? And so one of the things we do is we create a map and you can do this at home or librarians can do this wherever they are, where you, you put yourself at the center and then you just draw like a spider diagram with every single relationship you have, all the stakeholders, the users, the city, your suppliers, IMLS, anyone else. And you just look at each one of them one at a time and you say, what difference does this relationship make in each direction? Where is the value generated and how can we measure that? And trying to capture this thing of, you know, we're not in competition with media companies or publishers or we can't be. So, so where is the value? And we were doing this with a Spanish, um, a Spanish librarians. And one of the things that's come up because they had very severe lockdown is actually they were they were a kind of transitional space of refuge for people who were um, in danger of domestic violence or suffering from domestic violence. They weren't formally a refuge, but people would go there during the day knowing that they were safe in public, that it was a soft, staffed space. And when they were doing this map and looking at values, they were saying, this is a difference that we made for the community that we can't make now. But previously, they hadn't even thought about it being something they did. So, so one of the things we can do is sort of try and map relationships and see see where the difference lies. Yeah, and uh, librarians, I don't encourage you to go shoot lions. So. <laughs> it would not That's be good, good for start. your reputation. <laughs> Who knew that there was one thing that all of library land could probably agree on? 
<laughs> oh, there's probably some librarian out there that wants to shoot lions. <laughs> yeah. There's always given, somebody. <laughs> given that you brought up that question of access to electronic collections and everything else, I wanted to ask you as well, like it's very hard to look at the future, but hindsight is great. And I was looking back at the early days of this podcast and I think your first guest was Buffy Hamilton. Yeah. And yeah. you were talking about the Seth Godin Future of Libraries piece, which is like nine, ten years old now. And it was this question of, you know, should we be negotiating for e-lending solutions? Is it the library's warehouse versus library's concierge? And some people with quite frustrated responses to some of what he was saying. Um, how do you feel about that debate now with, with nine years sort of having gone by? Well, it's it's sadly still going on. <laughs> and in, in some cases, I mean, it's even worse at this point because, I mean, the publishers have kind of pushed back at, at some point. I think they were a little more, they were a little reluctant at first and then they kind of gave a little more and then they realized, or I shouldn't say they realized, they thought that they were losing sales to libraries. And, you know, I, I, I think a good thing now is that libraries continually we, we keep having these little task forces and stuff to try to gather data and i think there's a couple of good projects going on now there's one called panorama is that what it's called um, i believe it's called that um something with a p <laughs> i think it's panorama but they're doing a really big um get data gathering about this of showing the worth of libraries versus uh, to, to the publishers to say we are not stealing sales from you somebody checks out a new John Grisham book, then they go in to become a John Grisham book buyer in the future. So they might check out a couple of his books from the library, but they're going to buy six from you. So yeah. um, normally they would have bought zero. So you're coming out ahead. <laughs> um, so yeah, so sadly, a lot of those electronic issues are still kind of the same thing. I know early on, I think, was she the one that I think was also back then um, circulating Kindles, I think, in her library. Like she would fill them up with books and circulate them. And that got shut down pretty quick by Amazon of like, uh -uh, no, <laughs> you can't do that. Um, but I mean, that was people, especially in those earlier days, yeah, ten, almost 10 years ago now, um, of really trying out these things and pushing those barriers to try to figure out what we can do, what we can't do. Um, and I think, yeah, unfortunately, a lot of what you're saying is sadly <laughs> still what's going on now. Yeah, it's it's the real challenge, isn't it? That something seems to be almost cyclical yeah. and you we start to emerge from the loop and it comes around again. So, so again, I think one of the reasons we look ahead and say, what's the situation going to be in 2040 or even 2050 that seems so far out is not because we're trying to predict that distance, but it gives us a vantage point. Like in a, in a very corporate dominated version of 2050, how would we get there and how would they look back on the choices we're making now? And that's also one of those issues as, as we find sometimes hindsight says, you know, I can't believe how far we've come. Uh, I sometimes go and work with libraries built as recently as the late nineties. And, you know, they simply, they don't have enough power sockets for people to charge their devices. The acoustics are terrible. Um, you go into beautiful flagship libraries built in the 20th century and they expected them to be reference libraries. And so now they're more like performance spaces, but they have to put like soundproof domes and things in so people can have meetings. Yeah. No, I mean, my library, even we're doing a lot of um, it's great. It's a great thing that we're working with our local government to replace some of our older buildings. But our older buildings, quote unquote, are built in the 80s. But that's yeah. I mean, that's, that's pre-internet. We don't have Ethernet ports all over the place. You know, they've tried to you know retrofit them or whatever. But it's like that's nobody in the 80s were thinking about the Internet because there was no Internet outside of um, in the Defense Department or whatever. <laughs> so. 
it's so hard. I mean, I see it now. Like I, I was at a place called Bulls in rural New Zealand late last year, and they've got a new building. They've got the shell of it built, and they're trying to do strategy work, thinking about what to put inside it. And of course, they can change that year on year, and they don't expect to be able to predict, you know, are we all going to have implants or, you know, will it all be holographic or whatever? But at least trying not to actively put your head in the sand, trying to say, you know, what are we going to hand on to our kids and grandkids? And, and you know how a lot of libraries have like a black and white photo of some guy, usually a white dude with a beard, like this was the person who founded this library in 1910 <laughs> or whatever. Standing in um, front of the card catalog. <laughs> Exactly. One day there's going to be like a picture of one of us standing with a tablet, and they'll be like, "Do you remember?" Like, when we had um, these things and, called eye things, iPads, and iPhones. <laughs> yeah, well, it got even that you know the original iMac is, is almost forgotten. The iPod is almost forgotten. That's how fast this has moved. So it, it, it's also about trying to almost be a better ancestor. Like, obviously, we need to please our bosses and our communities here and now in our lifetime. But, but trying to hand something on that's still going to be valuable and viable, I guess. Yeah, no, and, and it's hard, like you said, it is hard to do that forecasting and figuring out because, again, 40 years ago, we didn't know the Internet was going to, you know, that was sort of there in the academic and, and kind of military circles, but nobody knew it was going to be what it is today. And just, I mean, I think this year is like the 10-year anniversary of the iPad. So, that, I mean, that's only yeah. existed for 10 years. Now it's like ubiquitous. So what is going to be, like you said, in 2050, what's going to be happening that we have no idea about right at this point yeah uh, but i think um I, I would assume like times like now uh, feel like you know we're kind of adrift and things but this is seems like this is a good time to actually do the kind of planning you're talking about where you're you're encountering something new you have like you said you can't see the data from the future but now look look at all this data we've got now um so now we can use all this stuff to plug it into our little formulas and figure out what to do in the future um so uh, do you think do you think that that like these short-term crises are kind of a i don't say a good thing but a, a silver line you can get out of it is um that you can do some long-term planning certain i mean let's be honest this is an enormous human crisis it's taking a terrible toll and the response to it is taking a terrible toll so i think the first and foremost thing is to understand that. And, and you will have heard this thing being banded around by many people. We're not working from home during a crisis. We're trying to get through a crisis. And if we can work from home as well, that's great. But, you know, the priority is survival right now. Exactly. But, but beyond that, it is a chance. It has slowed down some things and accelerated others. Things that we thought would be impossible are now happening. People are talking about universal basic income, um, you know, libraries are putting things online. Schools in the States rehearse for fire alarms. They might rehearse for tornadoes or other events. They never rehearsed for teaching their kids entirely online. And now they're finding ways to rise to the challenge. So in, in one hand, it's shown us that what we thought was normal was always vulnerable. It was always an assumption that things would go on as they had. We were always projecting what was now current into the future. So it's really good that we can't take that for granted anymore. And it's even an issue with this word, the new normal. Like, we're so eager to reassert normal, but we've just been shown that normal is a fantasy. Normal only holds together until somebody takes something takes your legs out from under you. Mm -hmm. so, so rather than think that, it is a chance for us to say, how will the world be different? How will we prepare for that? What good can we do in that world? And how can we protect ourselves? And a, a senior scenario planner that I've worked with sometimes, he, he gave me some advice. There's a Polish author who wrote a lot about Africa, a journalist called uh, Richard Kapuscinski. 
And he has a book of essays called In the Shadow of the Sun. And he writes about being stuck in a traffic jam coming into the outskirts of this town. And it's so bad, people are getting out their cars and sleeping by the side of the road and lying around in the sun. And he's a little impatient, he's this European guy. So he gets out the car and he walks into the city and there's a massive hole in the road with water at the bottom and there's no way around it. So vehicles are being dragged across it on wooden planks. And that's why there's this traffic jam. And so people are helping to get the vehicles across on planks. The local mechanics are coming to see if they can work on people's cars in the jam. People are coming around selling fruit and cigarettes. One of the houses has turned into a hotel. Local kids are like unloading the trucks so the trucks are light enough to get across on the tracks. And basically this whole community has built around the crisis to get through it. And there's a slowing down, there's a time to think, but also they're getting on with the job at hand. And he was saying to me, I mean, that's kind of like what the pandemic is like um, for those of us who are lucky enough to have some time and space to breathe. So I, I think, of course, we've just been shown that the old way is gone. So why wouldn't we take this opportunity to to start looking ahead? Yeah, it, like you said, it 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 is. I don't, I don't know if that's just a human thing of wanting to be feel safe or something. But like you said, we're not so much. We we recognize, I think, at this point that things are not going to go back to what they were before exactly. But we are looking, like you said, for a new normal. It's like, oh well, what what is it going to settle into before, and then we can be on that flat path again? It's like, well maybe we should plan for the new normal to be flexibility and um, being yeah. prepared for various <laughs> outcomes. Well, one of the things that's come up in the discussions that we have at the, the business school um, is really the fact that if you look, if you take a much bigger scale and think a bit further ahead, someone said, you know, this pandemic is peanuts compared to the climate crises that await, you know, there might be differences of opinions about what they look like and how soon they arrive, but in our lifetime, we're going to have a lot worse than COVID-19 to deal with. So, so whatever that new normal is, it will have to have a degree of flexibility and resilience. And I think also one of the dangers here is actually librarians are great in a crisis, whether it's an earthquake or a pandemic or Scott Bonner at Ferguson. You know, in the moment of crisis, librarians are incredible because they're so attuned to their community, whether that's an academic community or the public library with their local neighborhood. Um, the issue becomes, because it's a very responsive institution, sometimes it's hard to sort of anticipate and be proactive and try and shape the future that we're coming into. And, you know, that's what I love about a library is people come through the door and they ask for help or they have a need. The librarian does everything they can to meet that need. And I worked with museum uh, staff and they were horrified when they realised, you know, like if you walk into a museum and say, I want to see this thing and it's not in the exhibition, the museum just tells you no. And if you go into most libraries, the librarian bends over backwards to find a way, you know, like, oh, actually, this is restricted, but maybe we can do a white gloves thing or you can apply for a special card or, you know, we're so good at responding to and accommodating people. And then the question becomes, how do you become strategic about that? And don't just respond, but actually anticipate and even shape the future, like shape a future where the politicians will give us what we need because we've demonstrated our value. And, and shape a future where we can cope with climate crisis or an enduring pandemic or, or whatever awaits. Um, I saw something you, you've been writing recently talking about um, like futures literacy versus kind of risk literacy and how those kind of intertwine with each other. Can you kind of talk about what those two concepts are and how they work together to help kind of do the kind of work you're talking about? Sure. And, and this is something, again, that you people can really take and do for themselves like on the back of a napkin or a back of a piece of copy paper. So risk literacy is pretty simple that 
risk is really if you know that there are certain events which could happen and we all do this when we do risk assessments you can assess how probable they are and how severe the impact would be and that's just that's the language of risk which is the language of knowing that something might come to pass in some ways the more interesting and difficult stuff is when we get into uncertainty which is what Donald Rumsfeld really memorably articulated as being the unknown. You know, we have known unknowns and unknown unknowns. Mm -hmm. uh, and however, however you feel about him as a politician, he actually articulated that concept exceedingly well. Um, as soon as you have stuff that you just plain don't know, you can't measure it as a risk. But the benefit of that is risks are things that we mitigate against, whereas uncertainties create opportunity. And so there are, there are various terms, but one that the United Nations likes to use is futures literacy. And what that means is the capacity to sort of read and rewrite our image of what is going to come. And the more we do that, the more we think that the future isn't just a point on the graph, the fewer blind spots we have, the more flexible we become. And um, Pierre Vac, who was this great 20th century scenario planner who worked for the Shell Oil Company, had a great track record in helping them prepare for turbulent futures. He said, the danger is with a graph. Even if you do multiple scenarios, usually there's like a high graph, a low graph, and one in the middle. Everyone looks at the three lines. They go, sure, okay, we've taken the uncertainty into account, and then they plan for the one in the middle because, you know, you can't really go for the, for the extremes. <laughs> but but the, truth is, the truth is the rug gets pulled out from under you, and... The pandemic, just like the global financial crisis, this wasn't stuff you couldn't see coming. It's just that we're only human and we can't be looking everywhere at once. You know, you and I are not paying attention to bats in a cave in China. And we're not even paying attention to epidemiologists saying, you know, we're due for another big one. People live in San Francisco aware that a big earthquake is due, but without really adapting their lives as if it's coming in the next 45 minutes. Mm -hmm. um, and even with the global financial crisis, you would have had to be astonishingly brilliant to notice that experiments with debt on Wall Street would get so out of hand that they'd cause, you know, Goldman Sachs and Lehman Brothers to get into trouble, affect the world, national governments having to bail out banks, the impact on public services. It's almost impossible, even though everything is predictable, it's really hard not to have blind spots. And, and what Pierre Vac said is foresight as opposed to forecasting it's like looking at rain on the mountain and saying, you know what? In three days, we might have a flood in the valley below. Like, look for the signals that mean a big change is coming. If Libra's relationship with publishers ever totally collapsed, what would that cascade be? Do you think there are giant assumptions that, that library land sort of hasn't looked straight in the eye yet? I mean, that's probably one of them. And that's, that's what the kind of ebook thing kind of uh, brought somewhat to the surface is wait a minute, I thought we were friends <laughs> was kind of a, a, a part of that. Of, and it's like, they're sort of, and they, and they are, but then there's also this element of an adversarial part. It's kind of the marketing people are our friends, but maybe the sales people at the publishers are not our friends <laughs> as much. Um, and so there's kind of, there's more conflict there. And even in terms of where they portray it as, you know, we have to create friction. So basically they're saying we have to make this a worse experience. <laughs> for library yeah. users because we don't want it to be you know we, we want them to go on amazon and click one button and get buy it because that gives us money but you know to get it through you guys they have to click this and then they have to enter that and they have to click that and they have to do this and they have to do that and so it's not worth their effort 
Uh, I think I don't deal with it as much in the public library sense, but I think academic libraries are definitely grappling with this, with the open access kind of stuff and the big deal kind of things that, that they're finally taking a stand on and saying, no, you can't just keep ratcheting up prices basically exponentially at this point. And this is one of the reasons why also when we do strategy, it's really good to bring outsiders to the conversation when we're planning and trying to look at the future. Clearly, public librarians could learn from academic librarians who are also having a feisty battle with publishers. Uh, I did some work with law librarians recently, and I had no idea how tough it is for a law library. You know, if they if they serve, you know, the bar association or the legal association of a given state, you know, the legal publishers are saying, well, we want every law firm in the state to subscribe to all of our databases. So why would we give your library members access? And some of the best negotiators I've ever met are law librarians, because when when they manage to convince the publishers, which is not always the case, you know, they've really fought and they don't have a lot of cards to play in that game. And, and so I do wonder, because public libraries, obviously a city will employ the staff it needs, but it can't afford to apply a lot of specialists and ways to pull in experience from academic libraries, from law libraries for precisely this kind of issue or bring them into PLA or, or those kind of discussions. It, it fascinates me, really. Yeah. Um, I, I wanted to kind of come to sort of start to wrap up to talk about some of the uh, kind of exercises that you've done in the past and maybe kind of some other other kind of work you're doing now. Um, I know in particular, I'd like to hear more about Library Island. <laughs> well, Library Island is one of those things that is beautiful and kind of on pause in the age of social distancing. But um, one of the things we talk about is using the future as a safe space to, um, to talk about challenging issues. And a great example of this is Adam Kahane, who was a strategist and peacemaker. He worked in countries that were in conflict or civil war. He worked in Thailand and Colombia. And what he did was even with people who kind of wanted to kill each other, he would say, well, look, you can both disagree uh, fundamentally, but the one thing you have in common is you believe the future needs to be different. And you can kind of come together on the common ground of an unwritten future. And one of his greatest successes when he was doing this in Colombia, uh, there was a general involved in this process and the rebels found out and they were like, we can assassinate this guy because we know he's going to this peacemaking thing. And then the rebel representative said to them, you can't kill him because I've been talking to him for weeks now and we'd only have to start again with another guy. And they actually sort of found a way to have a conversation. So what Library Island does is people get together and take on roles on an imaginary island. It's very simple. It's not role play. You're either a librarian or a member of the public or a member of the government who funds the libraries. And over the course of five years, which takes about half an hour of game time, we just run the libraries. The, the members of the community come to the library with wants and needs. They're students, they're indigenous people, they're new migrants, they're older people. They have a politics and the librarians have to respond with the collections and resources they have. And this is a free activity. People download the PDF, hand out pieces of paper. But what happens is actually quite tense moments can arrive, but in this fantasy situation. So they're safe to discuss. Um, so we've had cases where the, the community protests, they set up their own free library. Sometimes there is a natural disaster or a political incident. And then what happens is after playing this game, we can talk about some of those knotty issues in the real world, uh, which is the thing that really interests me. And, and previously, for example, in Oregon, we brought people from across the city of Hillsborough to play, not just the librarians, to get that outside perspective. And one of the things you were saying earlier that I wanted to come back to 
and it's about this issue of funding and budget and you know should we have the filter on the internet to get the money working with some libraries i was working with an american library um where they couldn't open as many days of the week as they used to because of a budget cut and a philanthropist had provided money which was supposed to restore full-time service but it wasn't actually possible because you know no gift could actually be that amazing so they juggled the rotors and the rosters so that they could open for a time with as many days as they used to but it wasn't a lasting solution and when we went through a strategy process with members of the community the community were able to say something that the librarians had never felt able to which was to say we don't think you're ever going to get back the levels of funding you had in the 90s we think you should actually hire a philanthropy and fundraising full-time person and accept that for you the city's not going to get us back to that level and when you hear that from your own citizens and library users and voters um you know i personally would prefer for everyone to be funded fully and properly by the standard public sources but it tells you that for that town and for that library the community would get behind the librarians if they took that route um and sometimes you need that you need you need people in the room who aren't from your service and i think that's also part of the business of coping with uncertainty is the more people you can get into the conversation the better and sometimes people will radically disagree like we're seeing these protests in michigan at the moment about lockdown and very violent political disagreements in britain where i am now in the states if you can find that common ground if you can listen to people and say to them well look we're imagining possible futures so let's imagine the one where you're right you know let's imagine the one where the pandemic is a hoax sure fine let's see where that takes us that's not an easy conversation to have but you'd be surprised how often people can find something they agree on um and that's that's why we do this work that can look quite playful but leads to serious decisions right um and so then what kind of like you said that that's probably could be done virtually but is obviously done a lot better when you have people in the room that's sometimes you just need that face-to-face connection um so what kind of work are you able to offer now i know you on your site you've got that you can do video coaching and things like that what what are you able to do um that you couldn't that, that normally a lot of your work would be face-to-face so what what is it that you're able to do now kind of in this current environment that um still kind of adds to this work that you're doing My consulting actually remains very similar because what I do is help people to have difficult conversations. So we might move a little faster. We move in shorter chunks. Uh, I'm currently consulting with a couple of library services in the States, some librarians in Australia, and also working on the future of the European Union at the Europe-wide scale about regional inequality. That's all work where we had hoped to be in the same room at the same time. But what we're doing is chunking it into smaller Skype calls. And the thing is, it's not about necessarily bringing someone in to have that conversation. There's a couple of activities. uh, I can pass them your way and maybe we can include some links on the page of the site. But a very simple one that people can just do with copy paper is called Arrows of Time. You do an arrow in the top right of a page, which is stuff coming from the future, and an arrow in the bottom left, which is stuff we're still going to be dealing with from the past. And then in the top right-hand side, you just put all the different answers to those questions When it comes to the future, what are we expecting? What do we fear? What do we hope? What have we failed to plan for? What haven't we seen coming? And you let people put all the different answers, even if they disagree or contradict, and you just get a sense of what people are viewing over the horizon. And then when it comes to the past, you say, what haven't we finished dealing with yet? What do we expect will still be going on? What isn't over? Because, you know, for some people, it's, well, that collection still hasn't been catalogued. You know, we're never going to get that roof repaired on that one branch. 
And by just having those conversations with a sheet of paper, it just forces you to say, hey, where are my blind spots? Um, where are the places I'm too afraid to look? Or where are the places that I just haven't even thought something could come from? Um, in one case with one library, we did this with a group of different groups of people. And with the thing from the past, they all just put the name of one particular library branch, which was really weird. Like we're still gonna be dealing with branch X. <laughs> and it turned out, it turned out this branch was in a really well-to-do neighborhood. It did no business, but they had to staff it. Every time they had ever tried to close it, the people in the wealthy neighborhood had lobbied the city and said, we want a library. It keeps our house prices up. We love having a library, but no one ever went in there. So they, they had this unstaffed, unused library. And once the whole service realized that every group had mentioned this in this activity, they started saying, well, can, we, can this become a training venue for the city? And then we just open it on Saturday mornings, or can we make a case for reusing that building? But it just allowed people to say the unspeakable thing about, you know, no one uses that branch and it's only there because the rich people are good at lobbying. <laughs> one of the things that really good scenario planners will tell you is it's, it's not just about imagining the future, but to inform a specific decision. The point isn't to come up with three or four futures that live in a PDF or on a brochure and end up behind someone's desk. Like we've all seen strategic plans that go nowhere and they only come out when you need to tick a box. The point is to have a conversation that actually informs our decisions going forward. Sometimes bringing someone in is really helpful. Like, you know, in Hamlet, when he brings in the actors to perform a play, which is meant to make his uncle sort of fess up. Sometimes you need to bring in the actors and it changes the conversation. <laughs> but I, I'm really not in the business. Like having, I was a kindergarten teacher in my 20s. I've spent a lot of time in public service. The point is not to just go and blow things on fancy consultants, but just really to find a way to have better conversations um, and find ways to speak the unspeakable and think the unthinkable. And given that we're living the unthinkable right now, in some ways, if we are strong enough, it's a great time to say, what does this mean for us five or 10 years out? Well, Matt, thank you so much for um, facilitating those conversations with a lot of libraries. And here on the show today, I think it's really helpful for people to um, obviously be thinking through these things, especially in these times. But let's try to also remember not to stop having these conversations when um, things settle down. Again, obviously, we're not going to talk about new normals here, but um, but obviously it will settle down to some extent from being all locked in our homes. But, you know, sure. I mean, remember that we need to keep having these conversations. And I, and I appreciate that you're there to help facilitate those. Really kind of you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a complete joy. Um, if people wanted to get in touch with you to follow up on anything, how can they do that? The best place is I have a website, mechanicaldolphin.com, all one word, there's a contact page at that site. You can, you can read more about what I do, see my previous work, and you can come and say hello. I'm very happy for people to get in touch and pick my brains. Great. Um, and we'll have to have you back on the show sometime and you can explain what mechanical dolphin means. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'll see you again when there is a new normal. <laughs> yes. All right. Thanks a lot, Matt. Thanks, Steve. Circulating Ideas is produced in the suburbs of Atlanta. Views expressed on this show do not necessarily reflect those of my place of work or the place of work of guests. For past interviews, visit circulatingideas.com and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, or your podcast app of choice. And help others find the show by leaving a rating or a review. You can follow the show on Twitter at CircIdeas or like the show's Facebook page. Theme music is by Pamela Klicka and the logo is by Shandy Fry. Thanks for listening and keep circulating your ideas.